Uh, over the last few weeks, it's been a, a great run together. We've kind of stepped out of the journey that we've been traveling through in a, chronologi- a cl- chronological journey through the Bible, and, and we had some time to step into baptism, and then we had some time to step into communion, and then we had Easter just happen this last weekend, uh, just celebrating the incredible reality of the gospel that Jesus did come, that He lived, that He died, and that He rose from the dead to rescue our souls and to redeem our stories. And so it, it has been fantastic. And yet Yet, I'm so excited to be able to jump back into the journey uh, that we are on through the Scriptures. As you know, we're in the book of Acts, and so we are traveling with the early New Testament church right now, and, and specifically, even though we're watching the gospel unfold in the church as a whole from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and then into the outer parts of the world, we are traveling with Paul and his companions. Uh, Paul and his companions are carrying the gospel into what we might think of as the outer parts of the world now, beyond Judea and Samaria. Paul has left Antioch with Silas. He traveled into Galatia. He picked up Timothy in Galatia, traveled west across uh, South, I mean, not South Asia, uh, uh, Asia Minor, uh, ended up at the Aegean Sea. Right before they crossed over the Aegean Sea, they picked up Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and Luke traveled with them over the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. So we're now in Macedonia, and remember, Macedonia is Roman, 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 Roman territory, all right? We have moved from Jewish territory with Roman presence to Roman territory with Jewish presence. So very different cultural context that we're in now. Paul travels with his entourage over the Aegean Sea, lands in Philippi, and we begin to see the gospel uh, do its work in Philippi. So in Philippi, we bump into Lydia. We see the gospel do some extraordinary work there. And yet, along with that, comes great opposition from the uh, not only Jewish religious leadership that's jealous, but also from the Roman culture there that is suspect of anything that seems to be against Rome. And so Paul has to leave Philippi pretty shortly after he got there, and he heads down to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he preaches the gospel there, and there, uh, again, an explosion of gospel impact, and yet the Jewish religious leadership there at a very, very high level opposed Paul, so much so that Jason, who was one of the believers that came to know Jesus in Thessalonica, has to stand in the gap for Paul while they whisk Paul out of Thessalonica and kind of come to try to find him at Jason's house, and Jason has to go take me instead of Paul. So very dangerous territory in Thessalonica. Paul gets whisked from Thessalonica to Berea. He gets to Berea, and there, a massive gospel impact. The Jewish religious leadership there do not oppose Paul. In fact, if anything, they come to Christ. And so we're finally kind of going, breathing room, this is awesome, except for the fact that the Thessalonican Jewish leadership in their jealousy and rage travel all the way to Berea to come and try to destroy Paul. They're so ticked in Thessalonica that they bother to travel to Berea. So all the trouble in Berea is the result of the Thessalonican Jewish religious jealous leadership. Then Paul is whisked out of Berea to Athens. He lingers in Athens for a short period of time there. We see some great gospel impact there uh, in a very secular, idolistic culture. 
And then Paul travels from Athens without being whisked away this time. He travels to Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, I remember Corinth is the Vegas of our day, right? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You go to Corinth to do the things you wouldn't do anywhere else and preferably without your family with you, right? So, I mean, that's the, that's the Corinth world. It's where people function on the pleasures that this world has to offer. And so you're in a culture that the people that actually live in Corinth, they're just used to a life with very little commitment, right? You just kind of move in and out of whatever feels good, and this is where Paul settles. Paul settles in Corinth for quite a while, uh, really a number of months, even perhaps years. God speaks to Paul there and says, I'm going to settle you here. Nobody's going to uh, beat you or put you in prison or kick you out. You're going to do ministry for me here. So now we are with Paul in Corinth, settling into Corinth. While Paul is in Corinth, he writes a letter, in fact, two letters. He writes two letters almost back to back, and guess who he writes them to? He writes them to the church in Thessalonica, where he came from where the crazy jealous Jews were that went all the way to Berea. He writes letters to the church in Thessalonica. And what we're going to do for the next few weeks, while in the book of Acts here in Corinth with Paul, we're going to go sit at the desk with Paul and we're just going to watch him write these letters, and we're going to experience these letters, because Paul is writing these two letters with incredible purpose. He's writing them to the church in Thessalonica in response to something that occurred. You see, while he was in Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to go check on the church. Why? Because do you remember how long Paul was in Thessalonica? He was in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, so that's approximately three to four weeks when he had to get whisked down. Down to Berea. So the very fact is that the church in Thessalonica is an infant church with very little grounding, and which environment was the persecution the highest of what we could tell so far in Macedonia? It was in Thessalonica. So what do you have when you have an infant church with little grounding and massive affliction and persecution? Are you worried about that church? Well, you ought to be if you're not, okay? You ought to be because under that kind of affliction uh, with that little level of discipleship, uh, you are worried that their faith is going to waver and they're going to fall back into their old ways as we ought to. So Paul's very concerned about this, so he sends Timothy back. Timothy comes back to Corinth to report to Paul on what's going on in Thessalonica. Paul writes this letter in response to Timothy's report, okay? Paul is surprised and thrilled at what he hears. So that gives you a clue into the tone we're about to walk into. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and let's go see what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. Now, before we start, it's going to be on page 640, page 640 if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide on your way in. Uh, so here's the deal. We're going to jump first into chapter 2, verse 17, just to give you a context to show you how we concluded that Paul was writing this letter in response to this concern he had and the surprise and delight that he received back. We're going to start in verse 17 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, page 640 uh, in the Bibles we give you. Verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, though not in heart, we, ende we endeavored um, the, the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but S Satan hindered us. So you see what Paul's saying? 
He's writing this letter saying, man, you have no idea how badly we wanted to come back to Thessalonica. Loved this church, was impressed with them even in the three weeks that he was there, wanted to get back to them. But he said, listen, I was hindered in every way to try to get back to you. So though, though we were torn from you, remember Thessalonica to Berea, in, in such a quick way, our hearts were with you the whole time. Wanted to get back, but couldn't. So look what he writes. He says this. For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at the coming? Is it not you, for you are our glory and joy? You catch the tone there, don't you? Man, why did we want to return to you? Because what is our hope and our crown and our joy when we leave this planet? It is the privilege we had to pour into you, so you are our joy. And we wanted to get back with you and just celebrate with you and come and encourage you and exhort you. And so look what he says here, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, the ongoing paragraph. Therefore, when we could be, uh, bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So notice the words he's using. Why did we send Timothy to you? to establish and exhort you. Exhortation is the calling back into uh, faithfulness, right? So what is Paul assuming needs to happen with the church? Infant church, massive persecution and affliction. I'm going to need to send Timothy to establish them and to exhort them. Look why he says he sent him for that. To establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as has now come to pass, and just as you know. For, now pay attention, for this reason, here's the reason Paul's giving us, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What was Paul's concern? Rightly, that the church under affliction will have bailed on their faith because they were not established well and exhorted well because they had to leave so quickly. That's what Paul's concern in this letter was. What Paul received back from Timothy was, ah, no, 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 no. When I got there, not only were they not faltering, not only had they not fallen away, but the exact opposite had occurred. Despite our lack of time with them, it seems like the genuineness of the gospel in them has birthed an extraordinary church doing extraordinary things. This people group in Thessalonica are beyond faithful. And so Paul now writes to them. Now let's jump into the introduction to this letter because now you've got the context. You with me on what we're stepping into here, okay? And this is important because Paul's writing uh, a letter that's very rare. As a matter of fact, of all Paul's letters, there's only two letters that have this tone of celebration, this tone of surprise and delight, uh, Philippians and Thessalonians. All of the others are either fa fairly neutral in that they're saying, here's Jesus, here's what you do about it, or they're corrective. What are you thinking? So let's enjoy this letter while it lasts. Okay, here we go. Uh, the introduction, chapter one, verse one is just a greeting. And then verse two starts this way. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's where Paul begins. When I pray for you, brothers, now that Timothy has returned and told me what's going on, I pray remembering the expressions of what is true inside of you. Your works of faith, you notice that? Not just your faith, but your works of faith, the outward expressions of your faith, your labor of love, the way you're not only loving each other, but the way you're loving the people that are against you because a labor is by definition a hard work, right? So it's not just saying your love, he's saying your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in Christ. It is as though despite the fact that everything around you is telling you something other than what you know to be true, your steadfastness and hope is an extraordinary thing to see. See, Paul is writing them saying, man, I am thrilled about the way you guys are living. Now he goes on to tell them as though to encourage them at what an extraordinary thing it is to see this. Look at what he says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, for our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you and for your sake. So what Paul's saying here is, based on what I'm seeing in your life, this work of faith, this uh, labor of love, this steadfastness of hope in Christ, it is clear to me now that the gospel you received, you believed. That it did not just come as a word, but as an empowering of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the gospel you received when you received by faith, it was an authentic receiving. You went, I believe, and you meant it. Because now I see that it didn't just come to you in word, that you now have to process and see if you believe it came to you as a reality that you now live by in an outward expression. Man, do you, do you feel the excitement? Hardly keep up with Paul writing at the pace he's writing right now. Take a look what he says next. And he says this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He goes, listen, I, I'm, I'm just seeing it everywhere. Despite the trouble in which you even experienced the gospel, which many would have said, if you receive this kind of gospel and it creates this kind of trouble for you, what do you generally do as a human being? You should take some time and consider if it's worthwhile. And he goes, no, you guys, man, you received the gospel in joy despite the fact that it caused much trouble for you. So the circumstances of affliction have had no bearing on what they know to be true and what they're living to be true also. Paul is incredibly excited for them. And now look what he says. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Achaia is where Corinth is, so the region of Achaia is where Paul is now. Corinth is the capital uh, city in Achaia, whereas Macedonia is where he came out of. So what, what Paul's essentially saying is, because of this incredible reality of life you're living out, believing the gospel, what's happened now is you've become an example to all of Macedonia and all of Achaia. Everywhere we go, Paul's saying, I tell your story. That's what he's saying here. Man, when I go, I tell your story. Because when I watched you, I saw in you the reality of what you say you believed. And that's incredible. Because that's rare. You don't see that often. And so Paul's telling them, you're an example. But look, 
Now he's going to take it a step further. He's going to say, not only are you an example to others, because I certainly tell your story, but when I get to them, I find out your influence has already influenced them. In other words, the life you're living is having a massive impact. Take a look at what he says. Look this. But your faith in God... Um, uh, so he says, not only have you become an example in all of Macedonia and Achaia, now verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God and from idols to serve the living and true God. Here's what Paul's saying. Guys, listen, we travel Macedonia, we travel Achaia, when we show up there and I'm anticipating a receptiveness to the gospel that's going to be challenging, here's what I've been getting lately. Oh, you guys are Paul and, and Silas and, and Timothy? We're so excited. We've been waiting for you to come. Someone from Thessalonica came down here the other week and they were telling us about what you did there and how it's changed everybody's lives and it's unbelievable and despite affliction, how much they find great joy in the gospel. Could you tell us too? That's what Paul's saying. He's going, dude, the word of God went out from you, but more than the word of God, more powerfully than even the word of God, your faithfulness, the life you're living, has become a life known to all among Macedonia and Achaia, and they are blown away by what they're seeing in you. And so we have easy receptiveness with the gospel because of you. Isn't this extraordinary? Paul is writing these people to celebrate the reality of faithfulness. And what is faithfulness? We're seeing it play out here. Faithfulness is the outward expression of the inward belief in God that we have. That's what faithfulness is. It is outwardly expressing our inward belief in God. When you and I live outwardly in the identity that we've now been given in Christ and we live, express outwardly what we know to be true in Christ, that's called faithfulness. Think of the word, faithful, right? It's not a complicated word. If you are faithful, you are full of Faith, and faith is the belief that is active, and so what this is saying is when you are outwardly expressing what is inwardly true in your belief in God, you are full of faith or full of belief. And so your actions are simply the fruit of what you know to be true. Equally then, the opposite of faithfulness is sinfulness. Because whenever you or I sin, it is simply the outward expression of inward unbelief in God. That's what sin is. Sin, in every case, is the outward expression of inward disbelief in God. Because what you and I are doing when we're sinning is for a moment in time, we are believing that whichever idol we are in that moment pursuing or whichever passion in the flesh we are, we are giving space for or whichever part we're engaging in, we're believing that that will bring us more joy, more life, more light, more freedom than God's story will. And so it is actually an active act of unbelief is all it is. Not that you've stopped believing in God, but that for a moment you're forgetting Him. That's what sin is. So what is faithfulness? Every time there is an outward expression, an active action that is born out of the inward belief in God, you are full of belief. Therefore, you are full of faith. Therefore, you are faithful. And what Paul writes here to the church in Thessalonica is he's writing to say, listen, 
I'm so excited about your faithfulness. I'm celebrating your faithfulness because faithfulness matters. It matters a great deal. It's very important because it's so rare that when it does show up, it's so powerful, it's unbelievable. What does faithfulness do? Paul lays it out here. Faithfulness, first of all, authenticates the gospel. It does. It makes the gospel feel real. The gospel is real, but faith, when it is expressed, faithfulness is an authentication of the gospel. When people hear you and I talk about the gospel, but watch us live a life that demonstrates unbelief or trust in that gospel, we do not authenticate the gospel. We bring doubt to it. But when we live faithfully, we authenticate the reality of the gospel. And whenever we authenticate the gospel, because the very nature of the gospel is redemptive, it also produces an outward expression that is redemptive and therefore makes the gospel more beautiful too. So whenever you and I are faithful as people, faithful meaning that I'm simply going to outwardly express what I already inwardly know to be true, we, in other words, we take seriously what truth is and we live in that. It's not a behavior, it's actually a belief, right? Do you get that so far? Faithfulness is not a behavior. You can act what is seemingly faithfully out of different belief and it's not even faithfulness. Right behavior is not always faithfulness. Faithfulness is when right behavior is the result of right belief. And so when we believe and we know who we are in Christ and we live out of that, we authenticate the gospel and in what we produce, we make the gospel beautiful. This is our created purpose, folks. Do you see this? This is what we were made for and what we are now restored to, to live our lives taking what we know of God in the experience we have of God and, and imaging that or expressing that or displaying that to the rest of the world. So faithfulness is, in fact, the living out of our created purpose. Believe and know and then act on it and you are faithful, you make the gospel known, you make the gospel beautiful. But not only that, faithfulness also has another dramatic impact. In making the gospel authenticated and beautiful, faithfulness has a tremendous missional impact. Did you notice that throughout this introduction? You've become an example to all the churches where? In Thessalonica? No, in Macedonia, Achaia, the entire known region. I tell your story everywhere because it's worth telling because it's amazing. And wait, I don't even have to tell your story because frankly, everyone in Macedonia and Achaia have already heard about you. Why have they heard about them? Because in a cultural context of this planet, pick the culture, I don't really care which one, ours included, faithfulness is very rare. And so when it's actually present, when people are actually living redemptively out of reality and belief, it produces extraordinary things and it makes a massive impact. He said, yeah, yeah, the word of the gospel went out from you, but what you've been living has. This is one of my frustrations in the lives we often live uh, in the Western church. We run around with our memorized little gospel tracts. We run around with our theological sound bites. We run around with our corrective realities. We tell people about the gospel, but the reason that the culture has such a hard time with the gospel we tell them is because it doesn't sound like good news. We tell them, hey, here's what Jesus did for us. He came to rescue you so one day when you die, you could be in heaven. And by the way, here are the rules that come with that. I know you've been having fun and I know it feels like fun, but trust me, my miserable life is better than your fun life. Because one day I'll die and then it'll be awesome because I live by the rules. Now we don't quite do it that way, but that's how it feels, isn't it? Even when we intellectually know that's not true and that's not a truth, we live like that. 
we live as though the realities of Christ is a burden, and so we, we memorize the gospel, we know it, and we know it's settled our eternity, but on a day-to-day basis, do we live as though we believe it, and when we don't, then when we share it, it seems odd. But when we are faithful, then people look at our lives and go, I want to hear more about why it is you do what you do, because we transcend those circumstances that seem to come to squash us. So faithfulness has tremendous gospel impact, tremendous missional implications. It makes the gospel beautiful, it authenticates it, and it has great impact. It's a powerful thing so far. And then something Paul doesn't say here, but Jesus bothers to make very clear for the rest of Scripture, faithfulness actually seems to matter to Jesus too. That's a good reason to pay close attention to this. In our Christian circles, we have this little line we love to use about when we're going to die, right? And we say, when I die, I want to hear the words from the Lord. Oh, good and faithful servant. Well done, right? We, we want, I, I think we want to hear those, but we want to hear them, but not necessarily have to live faithfully to get them, right? I mean, essentially, it's kind of that way. But here's the deal. You know why I want to hear those words? Because that is the great uh, win for us that we have served him well. And what word did he choose to use? He could have used any word there. A good and well-behaving servant or a good and theologically sound servant or good and he could have, but this is what he picked. He said, good and faithful servant. Why did he pick faithful? In my opinion, here's why. Because faithfulness is the collision between what is true inside of us and what is happening outside of us. It is both. You see, you believed fully and therefore lived well fully. Faithfulness is not good behavior. Faithfulness is living out of good belief. Therefore, it will produce good behavior, right behavior. And so Jesus says, man, when you have been faithful, it means you lived your life full of belief, full of faith. In our Western culture here where we live, we have bred a culture, you and I, and have been bred into a culture of stick to I love that word. It's in the dictionary, I promise. You can go look it up. People didn't think so on Thursday night, but I told them. It's in the dictionary. Go look it up. stick means to uh, be resolute, to be perseverant, uh, to, to be unwavering, uh, to, to push through. As a matter of fact, there's three words in the dictionary definition, and then the line after the three words, after resolute and perseverant, it actually says this line. This is our culture. stick people go far in life. That's a dictionary definition. What does stick to it mean? Stick to it if people go far in life. That's in the dictionary. Because we have concluded in our culture that if you're willing to push through something that's hard for an outcome that's worthy, you get the outcome. We've learned that. So we tell our kids this, right? If you work hard, then you will get X, Y, and Z. If you push through, then you will finish the race. If you do this, then you will build the business. If you do this, and so it's this, this culture of, of, of a stick-to-itiveness, and we've done it. Because what we do then is, when, we, when you create that is, if I can convince you or you can convince me that an outcome is going to be advantageous to you or I, or what you produce is going to be advantageous to you or I, there is almost nothing we will not be willing to lay down for that. Now, I will say, the latest generation is even struggling with stick to right? If you can't give it to me yesterday, I don't want to work for it, Right? So we, we're even losing stick to But up to now, at least, what we've built in the last 200 years is the result of stick to If you stick with it, this is what will produce. That will be good for you. 
Here's the problem with stick to The second you or I become convinced that what we're sticking out is no longer going to be advantageous to us, we bail immediately. You only stick it out as long as there's advantage to you. In fact, we have an entire culture that functions this way. I'm going to use an example I spend a great deal of time in. In our marriages, we're called into a life of faithfulness, right? When those marriages get hard, if we're Christians, we push hard into them to try to make them work. And I get it. It's complicated. There's a boatload of stuff in there. And when it gets hard enough and you've tried long enough, what do your friends tell you? I get this all the time. You've tried hard. In a solid three weeks. Okay, I'll give you three months. Three months. You've tried hard. The culture keeps changing. It gets shorter and shorter. But let's give it three months. You've tried so hard for three months. Wow, you've been so faithful to this. So I think, you know, it's, it's clearly no longer it doesn't seem like it's going to work out. It, it, no matter what, the other spouse is not responding. So therefore, since there's no outcome anymore that's advantageous, bail. That's not faithfulness. That's stick to And there's no more outcome, so bail on the stick to Stick-to-itiveness is self-directed. It is dependent on an outcome that is going to be advantageous. Faithfulness is utterly different than stick to It's utterly different, and I'll tell you why. Because faithfulness is the outward expression of what? Of inward belief in God. And so if God says, this is what you need to do, it does not matter anymore whether the particular outcome is going to be advantageous one way or the other. What matters is that the truth God said is still true and so you do it. Faithfulness is opposing to self because it says it doesn't matter if this is good for you. It matters that it's good for him. It matters to God, therefore it matters to you. And you do it because it matters to someone else, God, and you do it because it's beneficial to someone else, not necessarily you. Often our faithfulness is also beneficial to us, but that's a bonus. That is not why we do it. It's just what we receive as a grace of God for being faithful, but sometimes faithfulness is not advantageous to you. And yet God says, I'm calling you to faithfulness to live full of belief. Now all of us struggle in faithfulness. I know that. And by God's grace, the gospel's big enough for our failures. So even when we are not faithful, God compensates with that in extraordinary ways and continues to sanctify us into greater faithfulness. But know this, what Paul is celebrating here is not stick to Paul is celebrating faithfulness, living out of that deep belief. The quality to stick to something because it matters to someone else, God, and it benefits someone else. That's what faithfulness is, and that's what we're called to. I stick to it despite what I want. This is what Paul celebrates. You see, faithfulness happens all the time in thousands of little ways. In fact, most of the time, it's in the little ways. That's where we see faithfulness play out. You know, it's waking up first to do the dishes when somebody else could. Shoot, you didn't say it. Yes, I did. <laughs> it's, it's stepping into that space where you're going to play with the kids even though you've got a very significant project that's behind and there's a deadline. It's loving that spouse even when they're not loving you so well. It's still building bridges toward intimacy even when they don't make space for it. It's choosing not to have that affair even though for months, perhaps years, they've been cold and hard and difficult. Or it's choosing to love them again even though they chose to have that affair and they weren't thinking straight. 
See, faithfulness is stepping into spaces. It's choosing the furthest parking space from target instead of the closest one because someone else might need the closest one. Yes, Renaud, pay attention now. <laughs> My wife says to me all the time, we could have been in the store, checked out, and back in the car if we just took that space instead of you waiting for the closest one. I drive in circles. There's got to be one closer. There's like seven cars between the store and where I'd have to park. So faithfulness is saying, I'm going to choose to, to give someone else something. Faithfulness is in all sorts of thousands of little ways. But faithfulness also matters in big things, right? In the little things we do and in the big moments where the circumstances, the relationships, the realities around us are huge. So in little ways, yeah, when, when that boss or that coworker stole your idea and made it their own, faithfulness is not gossiping about them even when your friends want to. They saw what happened. They come, oh my gosh, I can't believe they stole that idea. I know. Faithfulness is saying, you know what? It's okay. It's, it's, all, it's all good. You see, faithfulness is choosing to believe fully that the gospel matters more. And then when circumstances get super big, then faithfulness becomes powerful. I have had the incredible privilege over the last few years, over the last two years, uh, to be in the room with uh, families while four different children under the age of six months have passed away. I've sat in those rooms with them when it happened. One of those cases took place on Friday evening. Family in our church, little four-month-old son, Christopher, uh, found him unresponsive, rushed to the hospital, and over a couple of hours, it, it, it didn't go well, and so he didn't make it. And I was in the room at 10 p.m. when Christopher passed away with this family. They are a faithful family. They believe deeply the gospel. They've watched the gospel do things for years. They've been faithful in hundreds of little ways daily in their lives. And so in that space, when all you should find is unbelief, when death reigns at such a level that all you should find is unbelief, you know what shows up? Deep belief, faith. The faith that Jesus said he authored in us, the faith that he said he would finish in us. It doesn't show up because they have faith and I don't, we don't. It's that they count on what Jesus authored in them and they live in it, they're faithful. And so the second Christopher passed, in the moments of unthinkable grief, a worship song was turned on, and there we sang, God is good, God is loving, God is right. The prayer was, God, this was your son long before he was mine. You can have him. You think the dad wanted to speak those words? No, but he didn't speak them out of right behavior. He spoke them out of right belief. We walked out of that room into a room of 30 people waiting. We walked into the room and someone started singing a worship song and for the next 20 minutes, that's all we did. Loud as can be in the hospital rooms and in the, in the PICU, singing out worship songs while mom and dad wept with their hands raised, believing because faithfulness marked them. See, do you think I wanna write a letter to them like Paul wrote to Thessalonica? Well done. Well done, your afflictions are massive. But your right belief showed through everywhere in your deepest grief. I've sat with Kevin and Lindsay while they walked through the same thing just months ago and saw them do the same thing. I sat with Kim and my Clocus when they did the same thing with their son and watched them do the same thing. 
You know who these people are? They're people that are faithful. Because when it matters, their faith shows itself authentic and they live full of belief. Do you wonder how powerful it is to watch that kind of stuff in hospitals for the hospital staff? I do, because I talk to the hospital staff afterwards. Who are these people, they say. I say, yeah, because they know I'm the pastor because I demand lots of things as a pastor in those situations from the nurses. Kindly, I love the nurses, but I I play in between them and then they end up loving me because I can have all the hard conversations and they don't have to. And then they come to me afterwards, what's going on here and I get to share the gospel. And so I write like Paul did to those families I've stood with. I want you to know when I showed up with the gospel, they said to me, Tell me, tell me the gospel because we've heard of the faithfulness of those. We've seen what God's done in them and we want to know how. If we as a church, as a people group, not as an organization, as a people, started today to say, I'm going to live full of belief. When everything in me that I observe says to me, believe the world, believe this, believe what you feel, I'm going to say no, I'm full of belief. I, I, I run with what I know to be true. If we started doing that, do you realize that if faithfulness marked us fully as a people group at Mosaic, the things that would begin to happen would be extraordinary. You realize that essentially we would eradicate broken marriages? We, we would, because by definition they cannot exist in the same space, space as people who live in absolute faithfulness. I know we fail at that stuff. I know many of you have, and God is gracious and loving and redemptive in that, and your faithfulness is not undone yet. You can still walk back, and that's the beauty of faithfulness. You can walk into it and then fail, and then walk back into it and fail, but what would it look like if we were faithful? We would eradicate broken marriages. We would eradicate the deep, broken struggles between parents and children. Not the, not the normal stuff, but where that stuff tends to go because we can't get over ourselves. We would eradicate the realities of addictions because we would have discipleship going on at a massive level because we would faithfully stick with one another instead of just jumping in and out because we're too busy. We would eradicate if the church globally became faithful orphans, widows, the destitute, the poor, the struggling, because all those things require is faithfulness, living full of belief with our resources, our circumstances, and our relationships. The elder team at Mosaic would never again sit in an office with a grand vision and too few resources. That would never again happen if all of us lived in full belief and faithfulness with our resources. I'm just telling you, it's statistical. If all of us just stepped into obedience to tithing in the scripture, if we all did that, the elder board here would never again have to have a discussion about big vision, lack of resources, and compromising to try to figure it out. Do you understand the power of faithfulness? Do you understand why Paul's celebrating it? Do you understand why there's only two letters that speak to it because it's that rare? And do you understand the invitation we have into it? That if we do, if we dare to live full of belief, the world will change, and we will be change agents on behalf of Christ for that change. This is the incredible life that we get to live. Paul ends that little introduction by saying this line, and you guys continue to stand in the hope that Jesus is returning, as though to say, I know why you're faithful, because you know this planet is a vapor with your life, and what matters is serving the kingdom of God. As we fix our eyes on things above, we have full and right belief, then what we need and what we demand will diminish. 
and living full of faith will become our story and our story will change the world. Pray with me. God, thank you for this extraordinary invitation into living lives full of faith, full of belief. Would you, would you help us, Jesus, to diligently step into the disciplines of the faith, to constantly stay in those spaces where right belief marks us because we actually have right belief, because we actually are intimate with you, with your word, with you, Spirit of God. Would you fill us up with a passion to consistently, regularly be intimate with you so that out of that intimacy, out of that right belief, we would live our lives actively. That instead of sinning as outward expressions of momentary unbelief, that we would live faithfully as ongoing expressions of deep, full belief in you. And as we do that, like the Johnsons have done this weekend and are doing, like the Clocuses have done and like the Dennises have done and like so many others in those unbelievably hard circumstances. May we in the big moments and the little teeny ones with parking spaces ask ourselves what would it look like for me here to live full of belief? And then would you use us mightily to change the world? That not only would the gospel go out in word from us but that the reputation of faithfulness and all that it produces would go out so that the gospel would be authenticated, made beautiful, and have massive worldwide impact. Thank you for authoring in us a faith that you will finish, that we can tap into to live out of it so that we would live in freedom out of the identity that we are now found in in you. Help us to do that well. We pray in Jesus' name.